0: Episode 164, The Missing Link to Realize the Potential of Technology. Today I speak with Kyra Bobinet, MD, MPH, and CEO of Engaged In
1: American Healthcare Entrepreneurs and Executives You Want To Know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: What do physician burnout and subpar patient portal usage have in common? Well, it is forgetting about how the user will react to the technology. To get what we hope to get out of a technology, we have to consider how to fulfill positive engagement and behavior change, and then build that right into the use case in the workflow. Otherwise, people might come once, but either they'll ditch before they get signed up or never come back or, in the case of physicians, burn out. Today, I speak with Dr. Kyra Bobinett, who is the CEO of Engaged In, a neuroscience behavior design firm. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Kyra Bobinet, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. So nice to be with you if we are thinking about the 360 degree scope of engagement how should we be looking at engagement well
1: this is where i you know as a physician then public health physician then you know executive doing large scale design for health behaviors i've landed on if it doesn't make sense to the brain then we shouldn't be talking about it so for example if i expect you to be fully engaged in your health and in, instead you're living your life Uh, because health is on the back burner for you, because maybe you're really healthy, maybe you work out from time to time, then that's really unrealistic. And so I think the first step is us matching how people are experiencing their priorities, how people are experiencing their health, from how their brain sees something called, you know, salience, which is, you know, kind of what's relevant to me. And that really oscillates from a moment to moment basis. We think of motivation as this kind of static thing, but it is is as dynamic as the surface of the ocean, you know, multiple waves consuming each other, competing with each other, crashing into each other. And that's pretty much a good metaphor for how we might think about the brain and what it engages in, in any one given moment, right?
0: And that's going to have a large effect on outcomes because obviously Huge. if someone's not managing their health while they have other priorities going on, then they're probably not managing their health. That's right. That's right. And oftentimes there's a
1: mismatch between you know what the brain is able to focus on either because of stress or because of some other, I guess, obstacle we call uh, emotional barriers, you know, socioeconomic barriers, competing priorities, social determinants of health. All those things are kind of synonyms for this phenomenon that you just have a brain that doesn't have the bandwidth to focus properly the amount of attention and time and effort onto the situation. The situation is outpacing Their ability to keep up with it.
0: I know one of the ways that this, what exactly what you're saying, kind of comes to a head is with patient portals, because then Mm. it's very quantifiable. There's such a small percentage of patients that are actively seeking and going on the patient portal in a self motivated way. Mm -hmm. You know, so if we're going to make this what you're saying actionable, I think we've kind of quantified what the problem is is it deeper as it relates to patient portals or are people basically just not going on patient portals because they they have other priorities. So I think there's
1: two things with patient portals. One is that there's kind of a behavior fantasy we call it at our our company that we have about patient portals. You know, we we think that when somebody has a million things to do and their attention is being shattered by, you know, social media and things that are much more pleasurable to interact with, that somehow if we create a portal that would take up their time and we put things on the portal that don't make sense or that are maybe not there in a form that, that, that are readable to them or are are delayed in getting over there or aren't really pressing, that we have this measurement that we are interesting by how often they go to that portal. When in fact, we haven't really taken into account you know, the competition we are in. The competition we are in is with Facebook, is with Instagram, is with Snapchat, is, is with you know, their kids and their, their need to feed themselves and and those kinds of things. So I think right-sizing our expectations is sort of the first step of getting real about patient portals. And then the second thing is where's the cheese? It's frankly not a very you know, enticing cheese that we're currently using. So I think both of those things probably would make a much more realistic and more productive experience for both the patients as well as the systems that are spending tons of money on these portals.
0: It sounds like one of the first things to sort of figure out is really how often somebody should be going on a patient portal in order to mm. optimize in a realistic way their health.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think I think we've, we need to get real about the season of, right? You know, there's a season for everything. You know, we don't always shop for gifts at the end of the year. We don't always uh, try to lose weight at the beginning of the year. We don't always try to get graduation gifts or wedding gifts. We're, we're very seasonal animals. And so, we really not defined the use case for the patient portal down to, this is how many times a week this person would need this. This is how many times a month this person would need that. This is how many times a year. Is it event-based? Is it only in crisis? Is it only a parent looking after a very sick child? Those kinds of things are a little murky still. And so I think once we get really crisp on the natural behaviors of a patient portal, then I think we'll stop being so disappointed that people aren't coming to our party when, in fact, we aren't really throwing the party that we thought we were.
0: I heard that one of the reasons why Google got out of the patient, you know, the health portal business is because Mm. apparently, a little bit after the fact, they figured out that portals are not something that they considered sticky. And they were defining sticky as going there every day.
1: No, the, that's right. And and there's kind of this easy way of predicting this, right? So our brains basically see technology because we haven't been around long enough with technology that we would form any other opinion about it except that it's a person. And so your brain thinks of every technology as a person. And Google is a person to people. It's almost like a dog that goes, fetches things for you and brings them back properly. And it just happens to be the best dog of the uh, original dogs that did this, right? And so when they then tried to expand their brand to healthcare, they realized that nobody's throwing that dog a bone, that that nobody's throwing that dog, the ball to go get, there was nothing to go get. There was nothing that was kind of on brand for them in that domain. Because if you were to think of an EMR as a person, it would kind of be the love child of like a school marm and a IRS auditor or somebody, you know, like just the most, two most boring, strict people in the world. And it's not that interesting. And not only that, but it mirrors back sort of the worst case scenario for yourself, right? We get through life by feeling smart, able, better than the next person. You know, most people on a survey say that they're, they're in better than average health. And that's statistically impossible. So why is it that we need that? We need that to kind of get up out of bed in the morning, right? So if a technology is housing all of the worst news about us, all of the ways in which you know, our delusion helps us get through the day of feeling like, hey, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty healthy, and it mirrors that back of, no, you're not. You know, here's all your unhealthy stuff and behaviors and, and history. We don't really want to look in that mirror very often, and, and it really is an unpleasant experience. So, of course, Google wanted to distance themselves from that because it just wasn't
0: on brand for them. I guess the point of a patient portal Unless you're striving for meaningful use, which maybe there are provider organizations that are simply viewing their patient portal as a means to that end. But let's just say that you actually are involved in attempting to improve patient outcomes using a patient portal. Then I guess the relevant question here, you were talking earlier about the seasonality of health. You know, first of all, is that enough that people are seasonal about how they go about looking at their health data and thinking about their health? You know, is that a sufficient number of times a, a year? And if it's not, then how do you get someone who the last thing they want to do is confront their own morbidity and mortality, you know, get them to get back on that wagon and face it?
1: The use case that's evolving, that's probably the strongest one is patient retention and relationships between clinician and patient as a collaborative relationship. So that's kind of the the edge, you know, and that's where I think patient portals and EMRs can kind of rise to the occasion out of meaningful use, out of the sort of requirements to actual delight. And, you know, for example, if you have a really bad experience with patient portals, then you are going to go somewhere else. You are going to go towards a patient portal, a patient experience, I should say, that is going to make you feel seen, make you feel heard, make you feel valued, make you feel trusting of that system or of that clinician. And of course, if you have you know, a lot of physician turnover, you're also gonna impair the stickiness of those human relationships. So it's not in the data anymore. You know, when, when these things first came out, it was, oh, I want, everybody wants to see their data, they wanna own their data. Yes, in fact, 5% of the market, 5% of all humans are super quantified selfers. You know, that they, they want to know everything about everything. They want to know, you know, they want to track everything about their lives. But for the vast majority of us, we don't really care about that. So then what is the value proposition of these things? It's emotion. It's it's being able to make us feel better, or make us feel more at ease and reassured. It's it's basically the the digital imprint of what is a, optimally the best possible clinician relationship of somebody who is expert, who is reassuring, and who is able to be responsive.
0: How does that change the structure of a patient portal? In other words, if you were going to make such an inviting, delightful patient portal, what, what would it look like?
1: I think that I would redesign it with the first question of why does this matter? It's not a purpose-driven technology right now. Right now, it's, it's more of a requirements-driven technology, and getting at that, again, I think is relationships because that's the thing that we look at in our work as natural behaviors. Natural behaviors are when I'm sick, I need to go to an expert. And I, and I would rather go to an expert who has really high reviews as well as somebody that I've known my whole life if I have the luxury of that, which is you know, less, less common. But that's what really matters. If when I don't feel well or when I'm scared, I need to go somebody who I trust who has a tremendous amount of credibility. So how can the patient portal be an extension of that credibility and not just a repository of everything that happens? It's a way of making me feel smart, you know, like designing for my self-image to help me feel smarter, healthier, safer. Again, maybe even encouraging my (laughs) delusion around being better than average, where it's appropriate, not lying to me, but you know, being authentic about the highlights, you know, what are you doing? Well, what's good. And I would go look at that. You know, if somebody sent me my labs and said, Hey, you've got like a really amazing cholesterol panel, go take a look. I would go look at that and see how good my report card is on that front. And then maybe I would also see that I've got a little work to do on my weight or something like that. And maybe then that opens up the conversation. But the, I would say the emotional intelligence layer of the entire portal system A patient portal system has yet to be discovered.
0: And clearly, that is not something that you're going to get on the template portal that came with an EHR system.
1: And it's more of an evolutionary comment because, you know, of course, the first time you ever do something, you're just going to do the practical. You're going to have a bunch of engineers who probably most of them do not have chronic illnesses or patient experiences to draw from. And and maybe are not encouraged or forced to be empathic to their end users. And they're just trying to submit an RFP to the federal government, for example, for meaningful use in the beginning. I mean, that's how all this started. In order to jump through those hoops these companies first started out with just a base layer of connectivity. Now we're at an opportunity to really question, okay, so now what? You know, That didn't solve the problem. That didn't change behavior at all. So now how do we add a layer of design and emotional design that actually more mimics what humans really need?
0: Are you seeing that as a potential opportunity or are you seeing that as a phase that's underway?
1: If I were to say it's an adoption curve, it's kind of at the beginning with the innovators, maybe early adopters phases and segments. You see things like Cleveland Clinic adding both the integration of their their telehealth and their EHR uh, to really bring people to and, you know, kind of make give them a reason to come to and become familiar with and even signed on as a logon onto the, the patient portal. Or there's a, start, there's a startup layer too, tons of health incubators all over the country one in particular that I'm really impressed with is listen, MD, and they're basically trying to figure out how can you record the conversation between the physician and the patient just to translate the notes because we know that a patient retention of instructions and even explanations is fifteen percent one five, you know, And then physicians, we don't listen for very long i think that's more on the 15 to you know 20 second range before we interrupt patients and that's not going to change by the way even if we know that we're not going to change those latent behaviors so a technology like that helps to smooth out those rough edges helps to you know maintain eye contact between the two humans in the room without the physician defaulting to you know looking at a screen like a teenager at a family dinner while the patient's trying to tell them something, which completely cuts off our ability to connect with each other. So I love those types of technologies. They're a lot smarter. They're a lot more empathic, compassionate, uh, and and restorative to the heart of what healing is.
0: I think you raise a really important point. I heard someone say something really great the other day. They said, don't think that technology and communication are synonyms. Mm. But speaking of EHRs, this is also not just relevant to patients, but also to physicians and other members of the care team as well.
1: Yes. So, you know, as I was mentioning with Listen MD, I see that as a potential help with the major issue of burnout, a physician burnout that's happening nationwide. You know, as we start to deal with these these new ways of practice, even the new clinical visits that are happening, whether they're happening over the internet or in person, there's, there's ways in which we have to make the clinician's life good. And there's ways in which technology has come in and made it really, really bad. Stanford did a recent study on what the cost of their physician burnout is on their system. And conservatively, they're looking at almost $8 million a year in just the costs of burnout. So those are, those are the rehiring of new physicians, the loss of old physicians. And that's nothing to speak of the patients that will leave because those old physicians burn out and leave as well, or that they stay in their last year, but they give really poor service because they themselves are stressed or just done. You know, nobody wants to be cared for by somebody who's in that state of mind.
0: And it's often at this juncture at least a, a very well documented fact at this point that the EHR systems were not generally speaking designed with the physician in mind. If if anything, they were designed with a billing. Department in mind, so maybe it's very efficient. Yeah. I have no idea for the billing department, but you know the physician was <laughs> just kind of this. I, I'm uh,
1: curious because I have yet to hear one person in the entire ecosystem be like, "Yeah, that fits me like a glove." Everybody <laughs> seems to have not been in in the the in interior of the uh, the design process somehow.
0: In hindsight, it's probably not overly surprising because I don't know that the healthcare industry as a whole really has a stellar reputation of even considering user experience. You know,
1: that is such a good call out because we're really talking about just the subconscious patterns, you know, habitual way of thinking in an industry that isn't doesn't live and die by user experience anyway. So, what you know, why would it all of a sudden care about the user experience of an EMR system that it was going to? you know, pervade and, and be touched by every single member of that. You're you're right. I mean, if it was a retail industry, it would never have gotten away with that. It would have never gone any further than V1. Right. But, but because this is an industry that that's the blind spot and, and it's protected blind spot in so many ways, third party payers, you know, all those things kind of enable this. It's just now waking up to itself.
0: If I am thinking of trying to improve my user experience and either I'm on the healthcare organization side, you know, I am a health system or, mm-hmm. a, you know, some kind of provider organization. And I really want to level up either the experience that my physicians and other technology users have, you know, using my in-house in-clinic tools and, mm-hmm. or from the patient side side, you know, I want to, as you said, you know, improve my satisfaction, the satisfaction amongst patients or keep people in my network. Is Mm -hmm. there kind of a short list of really important things or questions? How would I go about this?
1: I think that the short list is, at least for me, makes sense is, you know, from how the brain has experienced this. So, you can pretty much figure out anything that is confusing behaviorally or not what you were expecting or hoping for behaviorally from any population of people, whether it's patients, providers, if you ask, okay, what's this doing to their brain? And there's a couple sort of big hits, you know, that, that are easy, you know, to, to get first off, first off, when you ask that question, one is what is this doing to their self image? We as human animals constantly broker our self image. We, we spend most of our time portraying what pe- we want people to see as ourselves and hiding what we don't want them to see. That's everybody's experience. And so if you're looking at patients and you're saying, what do, what do they want? What do they feel comfortable being shown to them? What do they don't feel comfortable being shown to them? What's abrupt, what's abrasive and what is, what is reassuring, you know, and those kinds of questions and looking at your experience from that perspective. For example, I I will never forget there was a woman on a panel who had a husband who had passed away? She had been in contact with his care team over the patient portal. Oftentimes, the caregivers are the ones who are the main patient portal participants, and we have not figured out a code or a way to give them access codes very easily. I have my own experience of this, and and so she was. She had gone through all those barriers. She was in intimate conversations with nurses, doctors, everybody. Her her husband finally dies of cancer, and she goes in to log in. And the login says, this patient has been uh, discontinued and she couldn't log in anymore. Oh, And it was just a total slap on the face. And so if we look at it through the lens of self-image, you know, how do people want to be seen? How do they not want to be seen? What's abrasive? What's trust building? You know, any of those things. It's just that we haven't done that. You know, it's, it's about what you pay attention to smart people are able to answer the questions they ask. They just may not be asking the question and taking any time to consider what's happening. But once they become aware of that and they take the time to do that, then all kinds of brilliant ideas come forward. uh, People who know their organizations inside and out kind of understand what they can and can't uh, move forward within their organization as change, incremental change. But it just starts with the awareness, the awareness layer and asking the right question. I would say another question that I, that I'd love to ask is the fast brain, slow brain, you know, 95% of our behaviors is on fast brain and 5% is slow brain. So, so the slow brain is like decisions, willpower, you know, choices, new logins, new behaviors, anything that we have to do that's new is in the slow brain 5% of our energy and time. And so we're competing on a daily basis with all kinds of work decisions and all kinds of, what am I going to eat and, and getting my, new patient to log into my new portal is in that category. And so how can we take out friction? How can we make that the shortest possible distance from A to B as possible? And I was just helping to design something like this last week. And uh, somebody was showing me their prototype for their note flow. I was, I, I said, well, you know what? Why do you have these three pieces in there? I said, you know, because really all that matters is this final piece. And they said, oh, yeah. So we were able to short it, shorten it 66%. Uh, between A and B. And, and we have to actually challenge ourselves to figure out how we can take friction out. How can we can take steps out? And then finally, I would say, you know, asking about rewards, not payment necessarily, but there's emotional rewards, there's social rewards and there's financial rewards. Being able to map your system, your workflow, your patient flow, your, uh, clinical flow, whatever flow you have in your business, By those reward systems and just being able to know where it exists, where it doesn't exist will enlighten. So many ideas come from people saying, oh, you know, I just make people wait too long for this reward. But I do have a reward. I just need to move it up in the process a little bit. And then people will be more addicted to my experience. They'll they'll be more satisfied with my experience.
0: The three things that I have written down here are... How does it affect self-image? And then also there's probably a social context to that as well, just considering the example that you gave of this patient portal has been discontinued after the death of a loved one. It's horrifying. Mm -hmm. Number two, the fast brain, slow brain. And I'm also I'm thinking that you're referring to Daniel Kahneman when you're you're talking about that, I guess, as a
1: in short. In short, yeah, that's definitely the most mass,
0: you know, understood
1: part of it. Yes.
0: And then number three, the rewards. And you had mentioned social, emotional, and financial. So I think this mm-hmm. is pretty self-explanatory maybe. And I do not mean to imply because it's easier to understand that it's easy to solve <laughs> because obviously it's not. But how, how do you see this more relating to an EHR system that a clinician is using? Where does self-image or the social aspects fit mm-hmm. in there in that example?
1: So, for example, we designed something uh, several years back around, it was a nursing portal and each nurse had a very large patient panel that they needed to manage. The way it was laid out, it was just very factual. It was, you know, name, date of birth, what pair they had, what conditions they had, what medications they were on, all the typical categories. And, but if you look at what moves somebody to go towards nursing, it is the desire to help other people. And the reward system for that is either being thanked by the patient, seeing them get better, that's also rewarding, or knowing that you have helped X number of people. And so what we did was we put a metric into the portal of this is how many people you've helped, or this is how many lives you've saved, or this is how many, you know, like those kinds of things, because otherwise you get lost in the process and the process becomes factory drudgery instead of meaningful purpose. And so bringing back a metric around meaningful purpose into a portal that they otherwise have to, a workflow tool that they have to use every single day, took the burn, took, took the sting out of not, no longer being a nurse that, you know, lays hands on people, that gets to smile at people. You know, all you had was a telephone call. And sometimes people avoided your telephone call because you were, you know, not very, you were not convenient for them you know? So those kinds of design elements can be ideated, can be created using people's imagination when they ask the right question, when they ask, how do I make this person feel awesome? How do I make this person feel safe? How do I make this person feel, you know, less ashamed of themselves? You know, most of the type two diabetes in this country is propagated on a subconscious ball of shame that nobody's talking about, that physicians haven't been able to approach or make okay uh, because of people harbor it. It's close to the chest. It's part of your self-image. You're embarrassed. You're, you're ashamed of yourself. You know, when people try to lose weight, there's always some reason that came out of some significant emotional experience. I talked to somebody who, you know, they, they couldn't get on the, the roller coaster with their child at amusement park because they were they were too large and that was kind of their moment they're like okay we got to turn this around it wasn't having diabetes it wasn't having these other things it was not it was being embarrassed in front of my child in public right so so we can't reproduce those things yes you know, as, as physicians we we don't have a behavior change curricula in medical school or in residency training this this is new this this is all looking at how does the brain activate? How, does, how do all these things come together? And how do we design for that in these technologies that we have as part of the process or part of the profession?
0: Given that example of the person on the roller coaster, how would you take that on board in a UX design? How do you make that trigger happen such that or accelerate it? Because obviously you're, you need something like that in order to catalyze a behavior change
1: yeah, and I, I'm with Jason Reha, who's a, a very you know kind of well-known behavior designer, wrote a piece in Inc on you know that UX design is not sufficient at this point. You know that's I, I was really into it about seven years ago, and now i it's it's not that it hasn't been played out because it's not even completely install based, but where I would point people to is what's really important is the sort of behavioral neuroscience or the behavior design aspect of it, because that's a lot more predictive and it's a lot more, it's a better tool for something like this that's loaded with emotion, that's loaded with, you know, sophistication that links somebody's health with their self-image and things that are kind of going on in their brain that are levers to pull. And the more we know about those levers, the more we know about the tendencies of us as human animals to do things or not to do things. It makes us better designers of behavior instead of just experience, because ultimately the, what separates the healthcare industry from every other industry is we can't just go along. We, we're not Caesar's palace. We can't just go along with your basest desire to sit on a stool and and waste your whole paycheck on a slot machine. We are actually burdened by the goodness of what we're trying to do for people that you know, try to do the right thing. It's not going to be as fun or tantalizing or as exhilarating as other things that are going to be against your health. It's not going to give you that sugar rush of eating a whole pie, but we have to stand for that. And and that's a whole other design challenge. And to me, that's what warrants the more behavioral and neuroscience aspects of design as opposed to just straight user experience.
0: Yeah. Actually, you know what? I conflated those terms. I did. I thought they were no, the, it's okay. the same thing. Well and
1: and I'm glad you, I'm glad that came up because the entire industry is trying to make sense of this right and and there are layers of there's kind of a conflation of layers because people will who never heard about design especially in hospitals hospitals are adop- adopting human centered design very quickly right now and yet they need to immediately go to behavior design you know do not pass go do not <laughs> lecture and I was like just keep going you know go, go for the next thing because that's really that's really the medicine you, for most broad coverage, that's really what is needed for healthcare specifically.
0: Speaking of this, Engaged In, which is the company that you founded, you call yourself a neuroscience behavior design firm. So I'm assuming that what we just were talking about is what you're doing. Given that same example of the the person with, with diabetes who, you know, just had their you know, their tipping point moment. How do you design for that? You know, how do you design to help people get to that place that they can start thinking about taking care of themselves? That's a very sort of unpacky
1: question. So the the short answer is you look at what's happening in the brain, you look at the science behind that, you form your, your thesis and your ideation and your ideas for designing out of that Base so that it's grounded in evidence. So it's grounded in things that actually exist. We don't have any of this like behavior fantasy going on because we kind of know what people will and won't do. And then you design things, and then you test them, and you go kind of through the the regular design thinking process from there. Um, that 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 to me is the most effective way. And and if I could snap my fingers tomorrow and everybody in the industry was doing it this way, I would because. You know, as a physician, as somebody who has tried to pursue and chase down the holy grail of behavior change my whole life and have dedicated my entire life to this, I find that the only way to get there is to understand what's going on in the brain because the brain is the steering wheel of the entire car. So if you want to know where the car is going, you look at the brain and then the rest makes sense. And everything else is kind of superficial and confused. My, my past self I felt like I had different epiphanies, which is great, or I had different wins, different accomplishments. That's great. But I feel like now I I feel really grounded in there's really nothing else besides this that we need to solve and that we need to figure out if, if our primary call is to change behavior.
0: This context helps me understand something that you said in an article that was written about you recently, which I kind of didn't get, but I think now I do. <laughs> there was There was a, a quote of yours, and you said, "When you know where the brain is going to go, you don't have to spend so much time guessing or iterating.
1: That's right. It, it saves a lot of time and resources. I mean, the, the thing is is that in healthcare also it's not a it doesn't have Google dollars. We don't have Apple dollars to, to iterate from 40 miles out. We we've got to use, you've know, got to be scrappy and we've got to use what we know. And our advantage is that we, there's a lot of science behind this. There's a lot of studies that have happened and you can extrapolate what the behaviors are in those studies to what people will and won't do. And, and we just have to remember what we know. You know, it takes 17 years for science to get translated into business, in into, um, application. And we're trying to reduce that by, you know, hundredfold. So hopefully if everybody starts thinking like this and we can all kind of work together, we'll have figured this out and and we'll just have a discipline around applying insights as they come out,
0: as they're published. Right, and first time right is generally speaking the most efficient way <laughs> way to go. Mm-hmm. So, if someone's interested to learn more about engaged in, where would you direct them?
1: We have our website engagedin.com, dot com, e n g a g e d i n, and then we also have uh, change training dot com, which is for people who are you know, innovators, who are kind of thought leaders, you know, like yourself, Stacy, who are really interested in adopting, adding this skill set to their own. I see it as complimentary. So no matter what people's profession is, we will be having a limited number of courses because obviously it's our side project to train other people because we're, we're so busy in our own design work. But if that's more the leaning or the, the thing that people are getting out of this conversation, then I would direct them to, you know, changetrainingcenter.com. Or if they wanted to talk about design projects, we're always happy to do that at engagedin.com.
0: I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You too. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.